Well, let's look in Acts 17 at verses 32 to 34, final verses of the chapter, as we continue our study on Paul's time in Athens. And um, beginning verse 32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now last time, just to kind of catch you back up to where we are here, verses 32 to 34, we looked at the fact that Paul and his discourse had uh, told them in verse 30 that God had overlooked in times past the ignorance of men um, and then their uh, own thinking and their own depraved thinking of who God is and how God acts and what he demands. But now he's commanding all men to repent. And so that, that command, says Paul, is emphasized on, on mankind by several things. One is that the day is fixed. Second is that the judge is fixed, who is Christ. And third is that the evidence is presented in abundance, and that is that God has uh, raised Christ from the dead. And so because the, because the day is fixed, known uh, to God, not to us, uh, we ought not to be lax in our thinking of, of God's judgment upon mankind. You know, that was one of the things that Peter countered in, uh, I believe, Second Peter, when he said that the mockers came, and they said, where is the coming of Christ? You know, the world's just going on on. Day, night, seasons, changes, you know, nothing's new under the sun. But Paul says, you have to remember that, that the day is fixed, you know, because you don't know the day, uh, you must still remember that the day is, is certain with God. It's not arbitrary, is it? God's not waiting around and going, oh, no, I'm not quite ready to, you know, for Christ to come again and judge the world maybe later, you know. Then it gets to that day like we do and say, well, I'm not really ready now. <laughs> no, it's fixed. It's certain. And the judge is set. And the courtroom scene is set. And uh, so they emphasize that upon the Athenians. Uh, uh, Paul presses that upon their conscience. And that brings us to, to um, the response that uh, we found in verses uh, 32 to following. We said last time, too, that, that the, the seed that Paul sowed is the word of God, right? But it falls on different soils. Remember the parable of the soil. So it's not a different seed. It's the same seed. But the response is very different because of the soil that's involved. And, and so the human heart is likened unto soil, different manner of soil. And the parable there is, is explained for us in the Gospels. But, but we saw that in verse 32, some heard, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. And so we said that they heard with incredulous hearts. So that was one response they mocked. The second response was that there were some that heard with procrastinating hearts. Some said, well, we'll, we'll like to hear more about this. You know, they're not really believing and embracing and joining, but, but there's that, you know, that something that's beginning to grab them and, and something they'd like to hear more about. Don't know uh, the, the outcome of that particular group, but we always hold out hope, as we said in, that, in the past, of God's grace toward them. But then there was a third group, and that's where we really begin this morning, 
And while there were some that were incredulous and some that procrastinated, there were some that believed. And verse 34 says, but some men joined him and believed. And um, praise God for that, you know. Praise God that while there are always those that are going to to mock at the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, there are always those that are going to put it off to a more convenient season as they think. Um, Maybe they will, maybe they won't. There are those that hear and believe. And that is the power of the Holy Ghost at work in the hearts of men and women. And the word there, join, is a very interesting word. And and, uh, uh, Jay pointed this out uh, last week after Sunday school. I looked into it this week. And it is a good word. It's from the Greek root word kalao. And it means to glue or weld together in a permanent bond. All right, and so the word that comes out in the English, join, some men join him and believe, means it's, it's glue together or welding in a permanent bond. I'm not thinking of those silly commercials for crazy glue, you know, or, or gorilla glue nowadays is a, maybe a more modern way to look at it. And the way they prove that you ought to buy gorilla glue is they show something that once it's joined together, it's nearly impossible to, to separate. Well, that's the idea. They join, you know, they would think of joined in different uh, Context, you know, would you like to join my, you know, movement? Would you like to join my group? Would you like to join my club? Would you like to join this or that, my team? Um, which we think maybe not in terms of permanent uh, a bond that, that is strong and, and won't be broken. But this joint is that which is held together um, and attached. And it's talking about people, isn't it? Some men joined with Paul and his companions, and the larger context is joined with the Church of Jesus Christ, and and it's in the sense of not just being joined together, but it's in a sense of how you view those people. It's it's the esteem that you put on. In other words, the Athenians that joined were their opinion was turned completely around, you know, from their skeptical unbelief from their caution from their you know who's this guy Paul what's this Hebrew doing you know teaching us about God their opinion completely changed and they stuck to him like glue they esteemed him very highly they esteemed the gospel very highly and embraced it and uh, so it's the, the, the association with the people of God so that's what joining there means so there's a lot of, of uh, nuances there to that meaning they joined it and believe of course if you have joined and believe you can you can see what i'm talking about you know there's more than just joining group there's the element of faith which is uh given by the holy spirit so the believing and the joining now who are the people that joined well it says first of all dionysius the Areopagite. um so dionysius named here for us was a man of the council and authority of, uh, of Mars Hill. He was, you know, they took Paul to, to the Areopagus, which was Mars Hill, you know, and they and they said, tell us about this, you know, new teaching. We want to hear more. Well, one of the notable men, probably a man of the council of, of the Areopagites, was Dionysius. And isn't that great that God opened his heart? And I think that's, um, that's, Showing us that nobody, uh, no matter how prominent they may be, how steep in their own religion and the ideas they may be, are beyond the reach of the Spirit uh, and the Gospel. And another notable woman that's named there says that joined him is uh, 
Damaris, a woman named Damaris. And so she would have been also a very notable citizen of Athens. Doesn't tell us what she did, but being named like that, I would, I would suppose that she was a notable woman. She was a woman of some renown. And so it would have been not only an encouragement to Paul to see those notable citizens come to the gospel, but it would have been an encouragement to other Athenians in the sense of the witness of those two people. Often God will start with a notable citizen of a community or city or whatever, and then that in turn gives testimony to the faith of those might come. Doesn't always do it that way, does it? But often. And then it says, and others with them. Now here we have other equally important people in Athens, but not maybe notable citizens of Athens, not maybe named for us in the Bible, but written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. Does it bother you sometimes that you may be one of those people that are not uh, named among the who's who? <laughs> well, you know, humanly speaking, maybe maybe we might, maybe we should set those type of goals for ourselves if God's put it in our heart, but the reality is our value, our worth, our notability comes from Christ himself who has written our names before the foundation of the world in the last book of life. And he wrote your name and he wrote my name. And he said, these are my people and we have no greater, no higher dignity and worth than to be named under the name of Christ Jesus. And so those that remain unnamed uh, in the gospel, like there in verse 34, others with them, just a group of unnamed people, are those that Christ himself has named and he has given his own life for. So. All right, well, this leads us to consider then, I think, several conclusions uh, about the verses. And um, so let's just kind of shift gears slightly and, uh, and, and bring out maybe some... some uh, and maybe some encouragements from these verses. First of all, I think that the gospel is a moral influence upon those who hear it. I don't think that. I mean, I know that. The gospel is a moral influence upon those who hear it. The gospel is not being promoted by violence or force as other religions that we see and have seen. When Paul went there, he went with a word and it was the word of God, and the, the word was what was having the effect on the hearts of people. Some sneered, especially when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, so we recognize that's a very, very central doctrine to the Christian faith, and we know that. And it's gonna strike the hearts and conscience of people. But, but some sneered, and some said, well, we're, interest, we're interested, but not really going to embrace it fully, and then others believed, but whatever the response was, the word that Paul spoke to them was having a moral influence upon them. It was, if you think about it in these terms, it takes us a little bit more out of the equation in the sense of feeling pressure than how we might share the gospel with people. Did I do it right? Did I use the right word? Okay? Certainly we're privileged to be involved to speak the truth. But it is God's word, not Paul's word. And it is God's spirit not Paul's enthusiasm or expertise or ability or education. And it is God's spirit working in the hearts of those people, drawing them, so it's God's word and God's power, and it is the connection at God's will 
not the will of the flesh, but at God's timing and circumstances in someone's life that all coalesces together, all God's doing, and opens the heart of the person that they might believe and join. We have the great privilege of speaking the word of God and living the word of God. Our actions speak louder than our words, don't they? You know, some people will say, stop telling me who you are and show me who you are. And that's a very excellent way to, to look at it. But the gospel, my point is, one of the conclusions we get from these verses, this whole chapter really, is the gospel is a moral influence upon those that hear it. The, the kingdom of God is not advanced by force or by violence. We're not going to put the sword over somebody's head and make them to confess Christ or die. Because we know that that would not be real, that would not be genuine. And nor are we commanded to do that in any way. How is the gospel spread then, being a moral influence? Because it works in the mind and in the heart. God works from the inside out, not the other way. God doesn't work from the outside in. He's not asking us, take the Bible and, and uh, revolutionize in your life, get your life all straightened up, and when you get everything right, check there, check there, check there, check there, you've got the checklist done, then I'll invite you into the kingdom of heaven, and I'll accept you. It's completely opposite. He takes us and justifies us before God the Father and we then having been born again begin the life of learning of Christ learning his word living his word sharing his word in other words couldn't we say it like this we are at once justified before God but we are progressively or continually our entire Christian life on earth sanctified so there is that once for all act whereby God declares us as righteous because of Christ. But then there is a continual growing in Christ, learning of Christ, refining our, our testimony, of letting our life match the words that we speak. And so God's working from the inside out. So we have to give each other a lot of patience in the church, do we not? And we have to give ourselves a little bit of a uh, a break, have mercy on ourselves when it comes to how we evaluate our effectiveness in witnessing. Because it's the Word of God and the power of God and the, and the timing of God. So it's a moral influence. I've, I've always been encouraged by that because a lot of times the response you see from people is, is one of these, you know? you know? And that's discouraging to me. But I know this, and this is what encourages me, no matter what the person is saying or verbalizing or showing me with their body language, if I'm speaking the truth in love, it's God's truth to one of God's creatures, fallen though they may be, but they have the image of God stamped upon their conscience, and that word of the gospel is having some type of influence, some type of moral effect and power upon that person. It may have the effect if God's will is to harden the heart. I do not know. I wish it was up with the other life. But however God is using it, it's having an effect, either to harden or to soften. Okay. Second thing that we can kind of conclude from the verses is that the gospel is suited to all mankind. All people, all places, all times, the same gospel is suited to them. Um, if you look in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I won't read it, I'll let somebody else read it. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. I think we have here 
and encouragement about God sending the gospel effectively, excuse me, among all classes of people. All people in all spheres of life at all times in history. We're talking about men, women, children, rich poor people, poor people, simple people, great and notable people. The gospel, in other words, isn't restricted to any one class. The gospel is not, you know, restricted, nor does it make a class once you have come to faith in Christ. It doesn't create a class. The beauty and the diversity of the gospel is that he calls all manner of people in all diverse circumstances of life to come to him. And so I think we can see this by the words all uh, in the context of them being used in chapter 2. Somebody read that, please. First of all, then I heard that supplication, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. The king and all who are opposition, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, not being dignified, dignified in every way. Continue to six, if you would, Ron. Yeah, please. So the word all there in those six verses is used four different times. So we have to understand the context of the word and the usage of the word. We're talking about the gospel and its suitability to all classes of men. I believe that's exactly the context of the word all when he says, first of all, um, not that word all, that is a slight different context, but he, and I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made in behalf of all men. And later it speaks of God's will that all men be saved. Now we cannot be talking, because it would, it would render the text meaningless in some ways, of all men without exception. We're talking about all men of human history, men in the sense of mankind, of course. All people without exception. Or are we talking about all within a certain group? And of course, if you look at the context, you recognize he's not talking about all without exception. He's talking about all within a certain group. And the first verse helps us to clarify that because he says, uh, behalf of all men, and then verse 2, uh, for kings and all who are in authority. So he begins with those that were in leadership over them. Now what's not said there, too, is that it would be inclusive of all others as well. But I believe the question maybe they had uh, at the time when he was writing to Timothy is, you know, what if we have, you know, what if we have an ungodly leader over us? What if we have a man who's not a godly man who's the king? I mean, should, should I, as a Christian minister, would Timothy say, be, you know, requesting of God to bless this man, you know? And, um, and Paul's saying, <laughs> we should pray for all men. Now, he's not telling me and, and Tom and Bonnie and Faye and Paul sit down and pray for all men without exception. Again, it's an impossibility. But he's telling us to pray for all what? Kinds. All classes. 
all realms of responsibility. Because, as it says in verse number uh, four, because God, God desires all manner or classes or types of men to be saved. That's an object truth. Some will say, well, that verse teaches that God will that everyone without exception be saved. But then if that's true, we're going to have to use the word all in the same context throughout. And again, that would be, in my mind, an impossibility. Is that helpful? certainly part of it. I mean, what you're speaking of is certainly part of it because that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, you know, in all godliness, you know. I mean, and our hope is that they might come to faith and that God would bless them. Our understanding is that God didn't wasn't under any obligation to be gracious to us, but he has. And so we should wish that for all men in a human sense. We should desire that. But yeah, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit to restrain the evil influences of the world for the benefit of the people of God. It's, it's a wonderful and comforting way to, to view our, our praying for all people. And, uh, and uh, you know, why would, we, why would we pray for those with whom we profoundly disagree that are in business or leadership or government over us? Well, there's an excellent reason because we're asking God that so the evil might be much greater that he would withhold and prevent frustrate the evil purposes of those. Good point. Anybody else on that? Very good thought on that. So all classes, you know, uh, God wills that all types of people that uh, come to faith in Christ. But aren't you glad that that's true? I mean, God didn't say, well, I'm going I'm to come and I'm going to save people who live in this generation and live in this city or have this level of knowledge or this level of income or social status. All people, all places, all times. So that includes us. All right, so my third conclusion then, and, and then we'll move forward from there, though, is that the gospel is going to accomplish what God ordains it to accomplish. And that's a very basic point, I know. Nothing profound in that, but, but you know, some mocked, and some said we'll talk about it later at a more convenient time, but some believe. And so the believing ones show us that God is, in fact, accomplishing his work in human hearts. And his power is not restrained. His power is not restrained by the, the, the heart, uh, hard as it may be. Uh, he changes the heart. He takes that heart of stone, as it says in Ezekiel, and changes it or recreates it to a heart of flesh. He takes the, the heart of stone, which had to have a stone tablet with the Ten Commandments on it to equal the hardness of the human heart. The stone tablets reflected the stone heart of man, and God said, here's what I'm demanding, but you have no heart for it. So then he takes the stone heart, replaces it with a heart of flesh in the new birth, and now the commandments are not seen by those who have been regenerated as a tablet outside of us, demanding 
but it's the law now written on that new heart. There is the law, there is the desire, there is the ability to obey the commands of God now within us by the Spirit of God. And so there's a complete change, and God does that. So the, the gospel accomplishes what God ordains that would accomplish. It, it uh, accomplishes the purpose to which God sends it. And uh, we don't know what the secret purpose of God is, but we know that it's always done, it's always perfected. So those are uh, some thoughts that I had. So you, have, you have other thoughts about maybe, you know, the, the uh, outcome of Paul's uh, discourse to them. Maybe some things that came uh, to your mind in the last weeks that we've studied. Hard to think of it all at once when you're asked like that, but... Excellent passage, isn't it, to, uh, to encourage us along these lines. Well, let's, uh, let's turn then to a second uh, goal I have in the study, not only just to, to look at the verses and draw out of them the best we could what was there, but I wanted to take some time now, and, and we'll only begin to get into it, and we'll finish next week. Uh, and that is to look at uh, Paul's methods uh, in general. We've already talked about them a little bit along the way said a lot about it, but talk, talk about his methods of sharing the gospel or witnessing or preaching, and then how we might be able to emulate those uh, in ourselves today. And so to do that, I think, I think a couple of things are helpful, and I want to do this. I want to look first of all at the foundations of idolatry, okay, and this is not, a, this is not going to go in depth, into depth into this, because it's just not what I want to do, and it's not uh, going to be helpful, I don't think, to spend too much time. But I do want to look at the foundations of idolatry, and then I want to look at how Paul set about to break those foundations down. How he set about to, to um, destroy the uh, things that they were counting on. Alright, so, I got this. There's no credit for this whatsoever, nor do I take any credit for any of it, because God wrote the book, right? I didn't write the book. But, but this note, this idea came from a footnote in the, in the 1599 Geneva Bible. Does anybody have that particular Bible? You have that one? You're not using it now, are you? Is it that way? Okay. So this came from one of those footnotes. As I was looking, and I, I have the copy of 1599, I was looking to see some of the, the things that they were seeing in those verses. There's a footnote, and it talks about, it doesn't call it foundations, I think it calls it fountains of idolatry. And it sparked this thought, and I thought it was excellent. So that's where I got this idea from about the basic uh, foundations of idolatry. And they're these. Here they are. There's three of them that, that were uh, basically given there. And they are, number one, comparing the creator with the creature. Right? That, that's a big one. Comparing the creator with the creature. The second one is limiting the creator within a place. And that's exactly what was in their mind and exactly what's in the mind of a lot of people today. And the third one is alluring or appeasing the creator with gifts. Now, all of these kind of strike at man's fallen uh, wisdom, so-called wisdom, in that if we're going to create our own God of our liking, and if we're going to create our own religion based on what we think God ought to be or what we want God to be, these are the areas that our mind will naturally take us. Because we're all alike in some ways. And we're all sinners outside of Christ. And so what we would do at the heart of a lot, if not all, of idolatry in the world 
is are these three things: comparing the Creator with the creature, bringing Him down to our level in our mind, limiting Him to a place, because we can manipulate Him there. We can go to Him or away from Him there, right? If He's in a place. And then the third one is alluring Him into our favor or appeasing Him with some type of gift, something that that we can give to him because if we can do that then he needs us okay don't you think that that gets down to the core of what uh, idolatry is now let's take them one at a time and see how paul countered those in the verses the first one comparing the creator with the uh, the creatures paul answers this with the infinity of god he answers this with the fact that God is infinite and he's created and rules over all things. Look in verse 24, the first part, the very first words concerning God. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it. That is a very definite sentence that sets the groundwork for everything else he's going to say. He answers them and their idolatry who have compared the creator of the world with their selves, with the creatures, by saying God is infinite and God has created everything that exists and he rules over everything that exists. Now you're going to compare it to yourself. <laughs> you know, in Isaiah, God says, with whom will you compare me? Unto whom will you liken God? You know, I mean, if you think about it, he is the one being that is without comparison. There is no one to compare to God. We learn by comparison. Well, it's like the color of this wall. Well, it's like this table. It's like this or that. So we can compare things. When we come to studying our great creator, we can hardly say, well, he's like, because <laughs> there is nothing to compare with God. Thank God that we're created in his image so that we can understand parts of him, that we can understand relational, uh, the relational part that we, uh, that we so treasure. And that we can seek our God, but we're not going to find anything worthy of comparison to Him because He's above and beyond all. Verse 26a also says, He made every, uh, and He made from one or one blood, speaking of Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. I mean, it's not only did He create everything in the universe that exists and rules over it, but specifically He created man, you know. That's where the kind of strikes at the pride of man, doesn't it? You know, we, we tend to think of ourselves in the fallen way as the as A number one, you know, king of the hill, top of the heap, you know. Now in God's economy, certainly among his creation, the angels and men are. But but that's in when we think of it rightly. But I mean the pride side of it, the fallen side of it says, you know, you know, it's the, the world is about us. You know, the sun revolves around me, you know. But, but it strikes at the heart of it when, when we try to compare the Creator with ourselves and we try to make Him, bring Him down and us up, it's idolatry. And Paul says, you're trying to compare something that's finite and limited with that which is infinite. And you just can't do it. So that's how he counters the, the first foundation of idolatry. The second foundation of idolatry is limiting the Creator within a place. Now to do this, Paul counters with God's immensity, that his presence fills all things. And when we get to these studies, we'll, we'll dig into these attributes of God a little bit deeper. 
But God is immense. His presence fills all things and all places. And so verse 24, the last part says, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. You know, we make this little thing over in, uh, where, where was it, Thailand, I think it was. My, my daughter went over there. Yeah, Thailand. I think they do it in India too. In Thailand, they make these little houses for the gods. And what they're doing is they make this little ornate house and they put it up in their own home. And what they're trying to do is attract the evil spirits to these spirit houses is what they call them. I remembered it now. They call them spirit. They're trying to attract those evil spirits to the spirit house in order that they'll leave the people in the house alone. So it's kind of an indirect way of getting your home blessed by, by giving the, the spirits a place to go and dwell. So the spirits will go to that place. They're over there, and they won't bother us over here. It's the whole idea of thinking that we can bring the whole spirit world, and in particular, the creator of the spirit world, the eternal and uncreated spirit itself, into a localized place, and therefore, I can, you know, if I want to go to God, well, I'll go over there to God, but if I want to go away from God, I'll go over here, away from God. It's that, it's that mindset that people might have. If I can localize God, then therefore I, I can manipulate God. I can go to him when I want. I can go away from him when I want. You won't see me if I go far away. <laughs> and if I get to feel a little guilty or want to entice him with some gift or make sure that the, the, the God's not mad at me, I'll go to that local place and I'll give that local offering and I'll do the hocus pocus and then I'll go away again because after all, that's one thing and this is another and, you know, kind of like people separate religion from, you know, things today. You can't prove that in the Garden of Eden, but they had at least tried to hide. Uh-huh. Couldn't hide, could they? <laughs> you know, God was gracious to uh, put it in, in terms of seeking them and asking where they were. He was just drawing out of them their own guilt and shame. For them. He wasn't wondering, was he? Yeah, he knew where they were. He knew what they had. Yeah. All right, let's look at verse 27b. It's along the same lines, last part of it there. And he says there, though, he is not far from each one of us. All right. Now here, to me, I, I see two extremes that, that people in their in their own imaginations about God might go. The first one was in verse 24, where he said, "God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands." That's that's to localize His presence into a, into a single location, which is not true. Then the other is found there in verse 27, the last part, where he says, "God's not far from each one of us." So God is in Paul through the ministry of the Spirit and the words that he spoke here and the words that are now written for us is encouraging us to not go to either of these extremes. Not to think that God can be contained in a temple that a man would make or create, but then on the other hand, not to say, well, God who created the universe is so far out and removed from the universe. You know he's not localized. He's way out there. Paul says, on the other hand, don't think of it like that. He's not far from any one of us. Though God is not contained within a place, he is right here all the time. And so we think, ah, oh, that makes my brain hurt. <laughs> so Ron, you're going to have to start passing out Tylenol if you're going to teach these kind of lessons because they make my brain hurt. Well, it makes my brain hurt too. But it's a wonderful testimony to the greatness of our God, who we cannot put in a box. We cannot, as the term says, get our mind wrapped around. We cannot. 
we know and understand him by his spirit who dwells in us and we know him savingly but we do not we, we are not I should say able to grasp him and master him as a subject of, uh, of education or work or a desire of our heart might be I feel like in the electrical field I have mastered the field I've considered a master electrician an electrical contractor so while I admit as we all would in any field of study there is more to learn I'm, cons I'm considered to be an expert in my field okay well if I were to say your subject is God I want you to be an expert in your field we would have to limit that we would have to designate at what level of expertise are we speaking at. And certainly there are those theologians and scholars, as, as we should all aspire to be, that have mastered a field of study in theology or an, uh, the study of God proper. And, you know, the Bible calls that I've had. That's what I was aiming at. But I have mastered God as a subject that I can feel confident that I know all that there is to know, or I know that all of the given information up to this point, whatever. Very different. So there's the extreme of thinking I'm going to put God in the box here, and there's the extreme of thinking God's so far away that, you know, <coughs> nobody can know God, nobody can touch God, nobody can see God. Paul says, He's not there in the temple that you made with your hands, and He's right here next to you. Or not really next to you. It's not. That's not a good way to think of it. He's everywhere because his presence, the Creator, fills his creation with his own presence. All right. So there's kind of that progression of thought. Verse 28 also says, "In Him we live and move and exist." And so there, I think, is a continuation of that thought that He's not far from us. Right? In Him we live and move and exist. That's that's the way we think of ourselves. He is the eternal source of all things. Everything we know and experience or ever will from now to all of eternity future is in Him. The universe, remember we said at one time, is not God is not within the universe. The universe is within God. And so are we. So there's that kind of that progression of thought. Stuns you into silence, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not it's good teaching, it's just confusion. <laughs> well, the third thing, he not only talks about the foundation of idolatry of, of comparing the creator with the creature and limiting the creator within the space, but the third thing he talks about as a foundation of idolatry is to try to appease God with gifts and to allure him into your favor. To counter that, God speaks of God's sovereignty and, and ownership of all things. Verse 24, he said, he's Lord of heaven and earth. You know, he, he's the owner. You know, who owns, who owns this building? Who owns this land? Who owns this city? Who owns this country? You know, when you get to that outside of everything, absolutely every molecule that he spoke into creation, who owns it? The answer is God. He owns us. He owns everything in all its forms and it's all of its parts at all times and so because he is sovereign and he owns everything the idea of trying to allure him into your favor with offering him a gift is ludicrous he said in the psalm that we read a few weeks back if i was hungry i wouldn't tell you about it <laughs> you know 
If God was hungry, he's not going to tell Ron about it. I'm hungry, Ron. Would you please bring me something to eat? I'm starving. I need you, Ron. I need you to bring me something to eat. Uh, we say that to him, don't we, often. God, I'm starving, whether literally or spiritually. I need you. I need from you. You can provide. I must have from your graceful hand, or else I'll die. But he never says that to us. And that's the whole fallacy of thinking that we're going to build a temple, and we're going to offer a gift to our God, and our God is going to be happy, and he's going to bless us, or he's going to not curse us, and because we've, we've provided something that he needs. We've, we've given to him something that he did not have before, therefore, Human sacrifices come from in cultures past. How did they sacrifice the most precious thing to them, their firstborn child? Give it to the God. Well, because the whole idea had run its course in the human mind and, and it's gone to its depths. So we offer something that would somehow appease the gods and, and, and keep them from, from being uh, de uh, determining evil toward us. I'm glad it's not that way. I'm so glad the truth is that God is the great giver and sent His to Him. Yes. Got exactly where I was going with all of that, you know. He he did that for us, sending his own son for our benefit, in a much more uh, profound and and uh, permanent way. He has sacrificed once and for all uh, that we might live forever. Not that he was appeasing us. We understand that it doesn't compare in that respect. God did not have to appease us at all, but but the reconciliation took place because God assured that the sacrifice of his son would be a once and for all offering for our sins for all time. So, good stuff, huh? Well, those are, those are the foundations of idolatry. I think that those hold true. After I saw that note, it got the mind spinning, and I got looked at it, and, and I really think that those, those are basic foundations. There are other foundations of idolatry. Idolatry is as vast as the, the fallenness of humankind, but... but uh, when you boil them all down, they do fall kind of neatly within those uh, categories. Well, the first thing we'll do next week, we won't start it now, but we'll talk about how Paul set about to turn away people from idolatry, some of the methodologies that he used, and uh, I think that would be an encouragement for us to, uh, to witness today. And then, Lord willing, after that, we will start... Uh, Tipping away at the attributes of God. Now, I've probably landed on about 12 or so that I think capture uh, the essence of what I wanted to look at. And uh, most of them are included in the text that we've, we've talked about, so that, that's why I wanted to, to do them. I don't know how that's going to go. We're going to have to see. It'll be a little bit of a different angle on, you know, on time of Sunday school, but take one or two of those and kind of work them out. So it'll be fun. Looking forward to it. Well, all right. Any further thoughts?
Thanks for encouraging me. That's where the power is, that's where the effective living is, and that's where the goal is. 